We have a special guest with us this morning, John Mark Comer. He is a, 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 dear, a dear friend. Um, he's a friend of mine. He's a friend of Trinity Grace as a whole. Um, he's been a friend for many years. Uh, we, we connected years ago um, in, in London at, the, at an Alpha conference. He's been around when uh, we were uh, a, you know, a parish church network across the city. Um, and uh, he's a pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I read uh, one of John, John Mark's books a few years ago, God Has a Name, and just like, you know when you hit a book at the right timing, it was exactly the thing that my soul needed, and uh, just to remember who this God is that I love and, and, and that we serve together, but sometimes you sort of like, uh, you just get crusty on how you are imagining God in, in your mind a little bit, and uh, it was so helpful. I saw there's two copies of it on the table in the back, so you guys can fight one another for that, uh, or you can just get it the regular way, uh, but also uh, John Mark is, is a phenomenal teacher, uh, as you're going to see in just a, a few minutes, uh, I think he has a tremendous uh, a gift to the church uh, of synthesizing information and, 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 and helping make something as, um, as robust as following Jesus, uh, you know, really ex- accessible, and, um, and I'm not going to even waste any more words. You'll, you'll see. But uh, one of the reasons we wanted John Mark to come in and not just teach, but give an impartation to our church is that Bridgetown has been practicing the way of Jesus for a long time, and, um, and, and that's woven through everything they do as a church and uh, sort of like the, the, the practices of their, of their groups outside of Sundays is something that has been really encouraging and inspiring uh, to our church and, and, and just knowing the way John Mark uh, himself follows Jesus is, is, is truly inspiring. He has a book uh, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry that is coming out this fall that I'm actually super pumped about reading whether you want to or not. I'm gonna be reading it, so I'm telling you that now. Uh, I couldn't be more excited to have John Mark here. He's gonna uh, teach just on the basics of following Jesus, and I think you're going to be really challenged and helped. Um, If you haven't registered yet for tomorrow night, we're having a shared event with TGC Williamsburg. It's like a mini conference evening. John Mark's going to be teaching again. Uh, Once you hear him, you're going to be like, I should have registered for that. So uh, tgcparkslope.com slash practicing has it. You can get there, register. Uh, I promise you tomorrow night will be worth your time as well. Armstead's going to come and read the teaching text, and then please welcome John Mark. Laugh at everything that he says that's funny and this is going to be great. Good morning, Trinity Grace. It's so wonderful to have you all here. As as Caleb said last week, this is the time of the year when everyone comes back from their summer vacation, so it's really wonderful to see everybody here. Our teaching text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. An hour early. Can I just say I'm sorry to like take away an hour of your sleep? I'm on West Coast time, so I just want you to share my misery, you know? Um, First off, congrats on 10 years. That's no small accomplishment anywhere, but especially in Brooklyn. You're like, I'm a New Yorker. I've been here for three months, and I'm leaving tomorrow. But um, 
Either way, well done for your church as a whole, or at least well done to Caleb. But it's such an honor to join you. Thank you to Caleb for the kind words, uh, about 10% of which are true. But thank you for that. Your church has such a great reputation all the way over on the West Coast and up in the dark rain where we have much better coffee than you, but aren't nearly as cool. Um, I'm not going to lie. I just, there's very few areas where you can one-up New York. Coffee and ice cream. Other than that, I have nothing. But... Our coffee and ice cream is better. Everything else, you win. Um, But you have such a good reputation all the way back home, and I do know your leaders, and they're fantastic, Caleb and Josh, and so many, you know, with all the hostility in the political world right now, people have been talking about that line, you get the leaders you deserve. And, uh, And that speaks very well of you, even though most of us don't know each other yet. That speaks very well of you. So thank you for the invitation and the trust to be here. We have a lot of ground to cover. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. You know, our nation is built around this icon of the rugged individual. On the West Coast, where I'm from, we lionize or mythologize, really, Lewis and Clark on the Willamette River, or John Muir in Yosemite, or more recently in Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Sheryl Sandberg, the kind of lone man or woman off to make a new life in the Wild West. I would imagine, I don't know, but here on the East Coast, you have, of course, Staten Island and the image of the immigrant coming to kind of make a new life in the new world. We want so badly to believe that we are in charge of our own destiny. And yet, as the poet John Donne so wisely said, no man is an island. The hard truth is we are all disciples or followers of somebody or something. The question is not, are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple of? This is just basic math. You know, at some point in life, hopefully by the time we're kind of in college or our 20s, we have to chart a course or we just wander through life, which again, in my city, and I'm guessing in parts of Brooklyn, people are just fine with that, as long as there's good coffee for the wandering. But at some point, you have to chart a course, and to do that, you need a vision in your mind's eye of a destination, of what we call the good life. And the trick is that vision has to come from somebody or someone or something else, because we've not been there. We want to go there, but we've not been. So we need a map for that journey, or ideally we need some kind of a guide along the way, not to mention a community and provisions for the road. Now, if the vision in our mind's eye is true, if it corresponds to the reality of the good life, and if our guide or our map are accurate, then we're in good shape. We live, and a decade goes by, and two, and three, and four, and we live into the good life. But if our map is not true, if it does not correspond to reality, the way things actually are, or if our guide is either a charlatan or or well-meaning but just ignorant or misformed, then that cumulative effect over a lifetime as a decade turns into two to three to four to five, we end up way off track and we don't arrive at the life that all human beings, religious, secular, ancient, modern, eastern, western, we all ache for. This is why Jesus comes as a rabbi or a teacher of mental maps, and he calls disciples to come and follow him. Now, of course, we as followers of Jesus know Jesus as much more than just a rabbi. We think of him as the Messiah of Israel and the world, and even as the Son of God. But if you were a first century Jew, and Jesus were to rock up to your synagogue one Sabbath morning, the odds are the category you would have put him into was that of a rabbi or a teacher. Um, Of the 90 times that people address Jesus in the four Gospels, 60 of those times he's called rabbi. But tragically, this is a very simple idea 
that we have lost sight of in the church in the West for a number of historical reasons, the Protestant-Catholic divide in our country, the liberal-conservative rift. As a result, many people, in particular in the vein of church that you are in and I am in, often think of Jesus as a savior, but honestly don't think of him as all that smart or think of him as the way, the truth, and the life, like the way to life after death but don't actually think of him as having all that much to say about the way to life in the here and now. So this idea of Jesus as a rabbi, as a luminary, as the preeminent luminary of the human condition and of Western consciousness as a whole is one that we need to recapture because it has all sorts of implications for what it means to follow Jesus. Now, we hear that language all the time. I follow Jesus. Do you follow Jesus? We're a community of followers of Jesus. It's become cliche, and that's not bad, but I'm not sure that we know exactly what that means. So all I really want to do with you this morning is sharpen up the edge a little bit in your mind and hopefully there in your heart on what it means to follow Jesus. To begin, let's just read a story or two. Mark chapter one, if your Bible is open, great. If not, just sit there and feel guilty. Um, Shame from the West, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Mark chapter one, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, here it is, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, that reads like a cheesy pun, but a fisher of people was a first century idiom for a great rabbi or teacher because they would capture people's mind, imagination. So Jesus is essentially saying, I'm a great rabbi, come follow me, and I will turn you into one of me. Now, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, his brother John on a boat, preparing their nets without delay. Right there, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and what? Do you have your coffee? What, do you have a followed, do you talk? Sorry, this is the East Coast. I expect people to be a little nicer. I'm from the West Coast, all right? Look at, that was so passive aggressive. See, East Coasters, you're just aggressive. West Coast, we're just passive aggressive. So we would never be mean to you. We'd just have a subtle little dig like that. That's, there we go. Anyway, and followed him. Turn the page, chapter two. Take a look at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up right then and there, literally left his career, and followed Jesus. It was the chance of a lifetime. Chapter 3, turn the page to the right. Take a look at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, remember that for later, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, and the biographer goes on. One more, chapter 8. Let's reread what Armstead just had up on the screen. Chapter 8, verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, notice that, and he said, whoever wants to be or become my disciple must deny themselves, that's step one, and take up their cross and follow after me. For whoever, and here's his rationale, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? 
or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, that's just a sampling. There are many more stories like the ones we just read. But did you notice that pattern in every single story? The call of Jesus was not, hey, everybody, I'm the son of God. Believe the right things in the mental furniture of your mind about, about me and go to heaven when you die. In the meantime, enjoy Brooklyn and be nice, you know, it, and make sure you go to church at least twice a month. The call of Jesus was to come and follow me, or another way he said it was to come and be my disciple. Now, this word disciple in Greek is mathetes. Can you say that? Are we waking up? Mathetes, well done. And it's a bit tricky of a word to translate into English. Disciple is just fine. The problem with disciple is we don't use that word really outside of the church. Um, another way to translate it is the word follower, which is fine, but in the social media landscape, we think of follower like, I follow Jesus on Instagram. His Instagram story is amazing. It's like a healing every day, like <laughs> demonic. It gets a little demonic and weird every other day, but it's amazing. Or another way to translate it is student, um, which is also a great translation, but in the Western education system, we import that meaning in, and we think like, I have class with Jesus Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 11 to 11.50 or whatever. So a number of Greek lexicographers argue that the best word we have in the English vocabulary to translate mathetes is actually the word apprentice. To follow after Jesus is to apprentice under Jesus. Now, just a little bit of historical kind of background before we move on. Contrary to what a lot of people think, discipleship, or if you prefer, apprenticeship, was not invented by Jesus. He was not the first rabbi to have disciples, nor was he the last. Rabbi Hillel, a few years before, had 70 apprentices. Rabbi Akiva, a well-known rabbi a few decades later, had only had five, but thousands were said to follow him around Israel. In fact, discipleship did not even start in Israel. It started in Greece. Plato was a mathetes of Socrates. Later, it spread across the Mediterranean. By the time you get to Jesus, again, we often divorce discipleship from its first century historical context, and people don't realize that discipleship or apprenticeship was the apex of the Jewish education system. It was a thing, similar to our PhD program or even a postdoctoral fellowship. There were three levels to a first century Jewish education. The first was called Beit Sefer, a Hebrew phrase meaning house of the book. And it was essentially a grade school. You would learn to read, learn to write, some basic math. And it was an oral culture. And so you would memorize most, if not all, of the Torah. So imagine Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. By the time you were 12, memorize. My son is back here with Caleb's voice, 13. Bro, you are so far behind on memorizing Torah, you know? Now, the vast majority of children were done at that point, around 12 or 13, and would go apprentice under mom and dad and the family and business, and honestly, a year or two later, start a family. But if you were really smart, or if you were from privileged or an upper-class family, you moved on to a second level of education called Beit Talmud, or the house of learning, where you, a school was literally often, at least if it was a wealthy neighborhood, built off the side of the synagogue, and they would hire a full-time rabbi or scribe as a teacher, and you would learn, at that time, from a full-time paid teacher, you would memorize most, if not all, of what we now call the Old Testament. Again, oral culture, but still, that's stunning. Genesis to Malachi put to memory. Now, after that, if you even made it that far, you were done. But the best of the best, I mean, the summa Laude, the Rhodes Scholarship, that the New Yorker, like that level, <laughs> right? 
moved on to a third level of education that was apprenticeship under a rabbi. Now, this is really hard to get into. Like, imagine getting into the most prestigious university on the East Coast. You had to sit for an interview with a rabbi. He would just grill you. How well know, do, you, do you know the Torah? And he would just, the intricacy of Torah and law and interpretation. And if he thought you had the acumen, the IQ, the drive to make it as a rabbi yourself, then if you were lucky enough, he might say to you, come and follow me, and you would track with him around Israel. Now, if that were to happen to you, and again, we're dealing with a tiny fraction of the population. If you made it in as an apprentice of a rabbi, you basically would then drop everything, uh, abandon the family business or whatever, and it was a celebration. Go off, follow this rabbi, and you would order your life around three very simple goals. Your first goal was to be with your rabbi. Follow me was not a metaphor. You would literally follow your rabbi. From synagogue to synagogue, class was not Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It was not in a classroom. It's an open air, first century Palestine. You would walk with your rabbi from village to village at a slow pace. He would teach you along the way. There's a well-known Hebrew blessing in the first century that was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. This is, you know, a thousand years before asphalt. You would walk on a dirt road behind your rabbi, and by the end of the day, which was your time of learning, you were just covered in his dust, and that was the blessing. Your second goal was to become like your rabbi. This is, again, hard for us to get our head around in the hyper-individualism of the West, where it's all about be true to yourself. It's not the world that Jesus is coming from. In his world, your goal was to become the carbon copy of your rabbi. You would literally imitate his tone of voice, his mannerisms, his yoke, or his set of teachings, his theological acumen, like you wanted to be him. And then finally, to do what he did. Like your end goal was to become a rabbi yourself. And if you made it through, and it wasn't like a formal certification as we think of it in the Western education system, but at some point, a year, two, three in, if you had made it through and not like been kicked out by a rabbi and he thought you were ready to become a rabbi yourself, he would say to you something like, go and make disciples. Now, if we flip this paradigm around from first century Galilee, Galilee to 21st century Park Slope or Brooklyn or New York, a picture of what exactly it means to follow or apprentice under Jesus starts to come into focus. To apprentice under Jesus is to arrange your life, all of it, around the same three goals. The first of which is simply to be with Jesus. Think of that line we read in there, that they might be with him. That's Jesus' first call on your life. It's the baseline of all spiritual life, the baseline of our apprenticeship to Jesus. If you're new to Jesus and you're thinking, man, it's overwhelming, there's so much, and, and this is long, and where do I even start? This is it right here. You slow your life down, and you begin to tune your mind, your heart, your body itself in to the Spirit of God, which is how we do this. Of course, Jesus is no longer here with us in the flesh, which he said is better, which is basic math. When he was here in the flesh, I mean, how many people actually had access to him all day long? A dozen? But now that he is here in the Spirit, all of us, billions of followers of Jesus all over the world and even down through history, have access to Jesus through the Spirit. Now, of course, the Spirit is always with us, the trick is, in the world of the iPhone and the G-Train, right, or whatever, and noise and traffic and New York, we're not always with the Spirit. 
We're often a million miles away in the chaos and busyness and hurry and distraction of the urban modern world, which means the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is simply to slow down both our mind and our body and to live in as constant of a state as possible of awareness of and connection to the Spirit of God. This is what Jesus himself called abiding. It's what Paul later called prayer without ceasing. It's what St. Teresa and our Catholic siblings call contemplation. Brother Lawrence called it the practice of the presence of God. I love that language the most because this way of living, if your experience is anything like mine, takes a whole lot of practice. Have a look at this from Dallas Willard. Um, This is like my all-time favorite quote. I have this on the inside of my closet wall. I read this so often. He writes this, the first and most basic thing we can and must do, so this is step one with Jesus, is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret, if like there's a secret to this whole thing, of caring for our souls. Our part or our responsibility is thus practicing, in thus practicing the presence of God, is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. He's so gracious, meaning your mind is a little bit like squirrel, right? And what is next on the agenda? But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God, and I love this imagery, as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Our mind will just in every quiet moment from a stoplight to a quick moment when we first wake up in the morning, we'll just come back to God, come back to God, come back to God. What Willard and so many master teachers of the way of Jesus down through history attest to is that after a very long time, if you keep at it by practice or by practicing the way of Jesus through what scientists call neuroplasticity and what Paul calls the renewal of the mind, your mind, your imagination, and your heart will begin to anchor itself in God's presence and love all through the day. In every little moment of quiet, or pause, or this beautiful thing from the 90s we used to call boredom. (laughs) Your heart will come back to the reality of God, and you will experience God not just as an idea in the mental furniture of your mind or a doctrine or theology, not just as an emotional experience from Sunday church or whatever, but as a moment-by-moment friend that you journey with or father that you live under as we live from what the Quaker Thomas Kelly called the unhurried center of peace and power. That is goal one of following Jesus, just to be with him. Now, out of that place, again, that's baseline for everything, comes goal two, which is to become like Jesus. Again, our line is to become like our rabbi. Jesus had this great line in Luke's gospel Um, about how, quote, the apprentice is not above the rabbi, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their 
rabbi, meaning for Jesus, the whole point of following him was to become like him. Again, not just in behavior, yes, that, but in the inner disposition of your heart and your person itself, to be transformed into a person of love and the corresponding kind of constellation around that of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and the rest. The kind of academic label for this is spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is, put simply, the process by which we are transformed to be more like Jesus and in doing so, our real true self. Robert Mulholland defines it as being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. His little book on spiritual formation is the best all-in-one-place book there is. Willard defines it as spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Tragically, you know, many people attend church for years or even decades and read the Bible and pray a few times a week, but after a very long time of that kind of evangelical formula, they don't really feel all that transformed, they just feel older. And that's because spiritual formation into the image of Jesus doesn't just happen. Like, nobody becomes like Jesus on accident. It's like, not, like you wake up at 49 and you're like, whoops, I just live in the Sermon on the Mount every day, you know? Like, I don't know how that happened. I'm just not anxious anymore. I don't lust. I'm just totally detached from things and radically generous. I don't know how that happened, but it was pretty cool, you know? Like, no, that doesn't happen. In fact, the current of culture that we all live in and swim in and carries us along often goes in the exact opposite direction of Jesus and his vision of life in the kingdom of God. In my working theory of change back home that our church is built around, we walk people when they're kind of new through the church through what we call unintentional spiritual formation, just a very simple paradigm where we point out that we're all being formed every minute of every day by one, the stories that we believe, which come to us through our digital device and life and you know, word in the street. Two, by our habits, which shape us into who we become. Three, by our relationships, we become like the people we're around. And four, by our environment. Like there's a stereotype to a New Yorker or a Portlander or an American or West Coast or East Coast. So however it is that we follow Jesus, it, our, our apprenticeship to him isn't like, we don't start with a clean slate. It has to mitigate against all of that in our city, and our life, and our phone, and, and it has to be stronger than the cultural current of a New York or a Portland. In what we call intentional spiritual formation, another very simple paradigm, we just argue that we are formed into the image of Jesus, not the image of whoever, through truth or the role of teaching as we take on the mental maps of Jesus in our mind and begin to trust them as the pointer to reality, through the practices or the spiritual disciplines, which are basically the habits that are based on Jesus' life and teaching himself, through the community of Jesus as we're around other followers of Jesus, and through life in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a ton more that could be said about this. For today, my point is simply that right now, you and I are both being formed into somebody or something. Whether it's Jesus of Nazareth, or your celebrity or luminary or business mogul or artist of choice, or the stereotype of your neighborhood, or our kind of educated progressive millennial generation, whatever it is. Again, the question is not, are you a disciple? It is who or what are you a disciple of? 
Put another way, who or what are you being formed into? If you chart the trajectory of your character arc out five decades, what do you see or who do you see on the horizon? And this is a key thing to realize, that spiritual formation is not a Christian thing. It is a human thing. That diagram is just as much neuroscience as it is biblical theology. We are, this is just fact. This is not a religious statement. It's not even an opinion statement. This is just fact. We are all becoming somebody right here, right now. To be human is to be dynamic, not static. We're all being formed every minute of every day. C.S. Lewis, in his teaching actually on heaven on hell and trying to make sense of that idea for a modern Westerner, said that all of us are becoming an immortal horror or an everlasting splendor. Meaning we're all, in his paradigm, on a trajectory toward life or toward death. This is why, and I don't mean this in an ageist way at all, actually the opposite. When you think about most people that are in their 80s or 90s, they're either the best people you know, like so loving and joyful and at ease, or they are literally the worst people you've ever met. Like seriously, like, like distorted by narcissism. Like how many 90-year-olds do you some, well, maybe you're in Brooklyn, you don't, I don't know any 90-year-olds, but, um, but how many elderly people do you know who are actually at the maturity level of a 10-year-old child? super selfish, super not self-aware. Or there are people like, some, there's some couple elderly people in our church are very young like yours, but who will come down for communion at our church and I'll just think, what do you, what do you repent of? Like, I don't think you've sinned since 1987, you know? Like, what, they're so transformed into the image of Jesus. And, and this, again, because we're all becoming somebody. You know, when you're young, especially if you're in your 20s or even your 30s, you have this sense that like human nature is plastic and there's scientific and scriptural truth to that. But you have this sense of like, who will I become, right? And you're here, you're in New York or whatever, like I'm here to become somebody. By the time you get to, I don't know, your 40s or something, that feeling goes away and it's replaced by, wow, this is who I became. Um, <laughs> okay, let's process that with a therapist, you know? There's a shift. Like, think of it, the adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Who says that? Young people or old people? Old people. You're like, 21-year-olds aren't like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> no, 21-year-olds are like, I'm so plastic. I can be anybody I want. I can do whatever. And, and there's just enough truth in that to make us believe it, but it's actually a, a very untrue picture of the human condition. The truth is you're becoming somebody at a philosophical and a neurobiological level. Your freedom to live in love is either increasing or decreasing. You're either becoming more free or more enslaved to what the writers of the Bible call your flesh or in kind of more secular language, your animal self. You're either becoming more loving or less. You're either moving toward life or moving toward death. Again, this isn't even a religious concept. This is just the human condition that I think Jesus and the writers of the Bible speak to with more accuracy, wisdom, intelligence, and offer a way out of the downward spiral than any other teacher luminary in the history of the world. But this is our goal as followers of Jesus is to move toward the trajectory, toward life, not death, freedom, not slavery, love, not the so many opposite iterations, is to become like Jesus, not just to behave like him, but like how we behave just naturally comes out of our inner man or woman, but to literally let the spirit of truth of Jesus transform us from the inside out. Third, our goal is simply to do what he did. I was just in a conversation with somebody in our church who is an apprentice to a plumber. He's in a four-year like apprenticeship program. And I just got thinking about that. And I thought, you know, at the end of that four-year program, 
This dude's goal is not like to know everything about plumbing. It's like actually to plumb a house. I don't know if plumb's a verb, but it is now. Um, it's to plumb, like the whole point of the apprenticeship is to become a plumber. But again, often we don't think of Jesus that way. So we're well aware that Jesus spent his time healing the sick and casting out demons and praying and prophesying and doing justice and living this radical alternative lifestyle. And yet we often forget that as an apprentice of Jesus, our goal is not like on day one, and you don't even see that with the disciples, but eventually in time as we grow and mature and are transforming the inside and we slow down and begin to live from a place of abiding, our goal is to become the kind of people who do the kinds of things that Jesus did, whether it's heal the sick or preach the gospel or stand up against injustice or live his pace or live in love, and live in love to do what he did, or really a better way to even say that is to do what he would do if he were you, if he was a woman, if he was a 20-something or 40-something or 50-something in Brooklyn, New York in 2019, if he had your job, your personality, your Myers-Briggs type, how would Jesus live? How would he bring and usher in and advocate for the kingdom, the rule of God's love and presence in Brooklyn or Portland as it is in heaven? So to recap, to follow or apprentice under Jesus is just to arrange your life around these three very simple goals. I want to be with Jesus. I want to become like Jesus. I want to do what he would do if he were me. Now back home, we call this practicing the way of Jesus Because as you can see, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a way of life. It's not just, this is another idea we have to recapture in the West. It's not just a set of ideas that we believe in our head or what we call biblical theology. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts or what we call ethics, both of which are great. It's not less than that, but it's more. It's a way of life that is based on the lifestyle of Jesus himself. Often in the church we say a lot about theology and a lot about ethics and almost nothing about lifestyle. In my experience, all three matter, but lifestyle is where the money is at. And this is why, listen, this is why the four gospels are biographies and why the biographies are full of stories about the details of Jesus' life, not just miracle stories and not just his teaching but there are stories in there about random details one morning jesus got up early and went out to a solitary place to pray one sabbath as they were walking through a grain field details of jesus life which makes perfect sense if you read them as biographies any biography readers in the house a few of you takes a special kind of person to read 800 pages about a dead guy you know or girl Um, So you know who you are. I'm not like an avid biographer. I dabble, you know. Every, normally on vacation every year, I read one or maybe two. I read read Mr. Rogers this last summer, which was pretty fun. But not as good as the documentary, so don't read it. Just watch the film. Um, (laughs) But uh, why do you read a biography? Think about it. Most of us read the biography either of a luminary that we look up to and respect or of some kind of a pariah that like we want to make sure we don't live that way, but it's fascinating. And as we read these stories, much of which are about the details of their life and history, we just at an instinctive level copy the details of their life that fit for our personality, gender, or whatever, because if we want to achieve a like similar kind of result to said luminary. So if you're in the tech industry or whatever and you read about jobs, you read, oh, Bill Gates has a week of reading every week and so, every year, and so you do that. Or there's this little habit of power napping from Winston Churchill. You're like, I will now put a couch in my office or whatever it is. Or, or there's something you want to avoid in an Elon Musk or whoever the biography is about. 
Now, tr- the biography of G- biographies of Jesus are no different, yet tragically, very few modern Western followers of Jesus read them that way. Read a Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and think, okay, how, with my personality, my gender, my stage of life, and my city, how do I, like, how do, I do something like this here in order to get the life that I see in Jesus of Nazareth? We have this little axiom back home that if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We, um, there's there's an interesting history of interpretation around the famous line, I'm the way, the truth, and the life from Jesus. And um, that's a very unpopular saying in a pluralistic city like yours or mine. And I don't wanna get into that whole thing over exclusivity or inclusivity. But that conversation aside, What many scholars argue is that Jesus isn't even actually talking about life after death. What he's saying is, I am the way to life. I'm the way to live. Follow me to the way to life. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, he has this beautiful thing about the narrow way and the broad way. And there's one history of interpretation that says, like, a few people are going to hell and everybody else is going to heaven. Most scholars argue that's not what he's even saying. What he, I mean, maybe there's some truth in that, but what he's saying is there's a narrow, there's a very specific way to live that will lead you to life. And then there's the way that kind of just everybody else lives and kind of just do whatever you want and what feels good, and that actually will not, it will claim to lead you to life, but long-term it will lead you to destruction. It's a very sober, but very honest and very thoughtful statement from Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the way to life. All of the practices that we'll talk about tomorrow night are spiritual disciplines in more historic language are all based on the life and the lifestyle of Jesus himself. There's so much confusion around the spiritual disciplines. People think of them as a religious guilt trip or a way to like earn God's favor or merit. Nothing could be further from the truth. They are simply time-tested ways of being, all of which that go back to Jesus himself, which makes space in our life for us to slow down and be loved by Jesus and love him in return, and more than anything, be transformed into people of love. And none of them are commanded. Did you notice that? Jesus has lots of commands. He never commands you to wake up in the morning and have a quiet time. Doesn't command you to read scripture. Doesn't command you to go to church on Sunday. Doesn't command you to live in community. Doesn't really command hardly any of the stuff in his way. He just does all of those things, and then says, if you want to experience life, Come and follow me. Come up, or put another way, come and copy the details of my life. And even that is not a command, it's an invitation. And as we close this morning, just notice two things about Jesus' invitation, to come and follow him. One, the invitation is to become an apprentice or a disciple, not a Christian. Most people don't realize that the moniker Christian is only used a few times in the New Testament two or three times, and it's actually used as a pejorative. The word apprentice, or mathetes, is used upwards of 300 times, the dominant moniker in the New Testament for what you and I are. Now, in some of this is just semantics, but what's the difference between a Christian and an apprentice of Jesus? For most people in the U.S., all the word Christian means, which is ironically becoming a negative political word, But historically, all it really means is that you believe in the basic ideas of Christianity at a kind of mental level. You go to church once in a while, and you're a semi-moral person in the Judeo-Christian ethic. 
Being a Christian is often, for many people in our country, more about Jesus following you <laughs> than about you following Jesus, meaning more about Jesus coming in to like bless you and hook you up and answer a prayer when you need some help, more than a, a life that is organized around be with, become like, do what he would do. And this is a huge problem for all of the talk about secularization in our nation, which obviously is much more true in your city and mine than the nation as a whole, but a recent Gallup poll said that 76% of Americans claim to be Christian, but a number of independent nonprofits have done some research, and this is really hard to measure, but about how many of that 76% are actually following Jesus, and they have some basic metrics by which they survey people, and each independent survey comes in right at around 8% for the nation as a whole. So 76% of our nation identifies as Christian, 8%, as far as we can tell, actually follow Jesus to some degree. And that's because in the Western church, sadly, for all sorts of reasons we don't need to go into, we've created a cultural milieu where you can be a Christian, but not an apprentice of Jesus. And you're smart people, like that's not a category option to the writers of the New Testament or to Jesus himself. All four writers of the Gospels have these two groups of people that you read about. We read it right there, if your Bible's still open, in Mark 8. The crowds and the disciples of Jesus. Now remember, there were more than just the 12 apostles. There were other, so the, the apostles were a subset of Jesus' disciples. We don't know if there were dozens. There were at least 70. We don't know if there were dozens or hundreds or thousands. It's not clear in the text. But there was one group of people that were disciples, apprentices, followers, of, that would literally follow Jesus around Israel. And then there were these huge crowds of thousands of people. I mean, at one story, we read about 20, 30,000 people. At one, this is in the ancient world. This is like before Barclays Center and like Jay-Z. This is way before all of that, right? And um, the crowds are told, we have no idea who's in that crowd. Some people we assume are well-meaning and just don't know about Jesus yet. Other, like we know, are a Pharisee or a critic or a, literally who plot to murder Jesus. Like it's a mixed bag of people. And this is a literary device used by the four writers to force you, and of course we hate like the binary either or, I'm in, out, like we're so progressive, postmodern, we're like, we don't do that anymore. But the gospel writers actually like to mess with you, and Jesus, a lot of his teaching is very binary, very either or, and it's a beautiful rhetorical device that doesn't let you sit in the postmodern kind of like ambiguity of I don't know really where I'm at, I wanna keep my options open. It forces you to basically identify with one of the two groups. I'm either a disciple of Jesus or I'm in the crowd. And a crowd doesn't make you a bad person at all. It doesn't make you evil. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. It just means you're not following Jesus into life in the kingdom of God. But the constant invitation is for people in the crowd to become disciples of Jesus. Dallas Willard said this, the greatest issue facing the world today and he's a philosopher from the University of Southern California, and you would think he would go into Foucault, power dynamics, injustice, whatever, inequality between wealth, you know, poor, automation, whatever. No, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He is looking for apprentices to life in the kingdom of God. And secondly, as we end, the other thing I love about this invitation is that it's open to all. Unlike the other rabbis of his day 
who would only take the best of the best of the best. Jesus will take anybody. That's why Matthew and Peter and James and John all drop everything to go and follow this rabbi. We read that as like a statement of virtue. It's not. Imagine if you like have a, a minimum wage job at a fast food restaurant and Jesus and some like rock star celebrity professor, Jonathan Haidt or you know, Stephen, whoever, were to walk in and say, hey, would you like a free ride scholarship to get your PhD at Yale and do anything that you want with your life? I'll pay for the whole thing. You didn't graduate from high school, no problem. Just come, just walk out with me and I'll, I'll take care of your whole thing. You would drop the apron on the floor and you would give up everything and nobody would see like so virtuous. They'd be like, you just had the chance of a lifetime. That's a better way of reading these stories. And this is the beauty of Jesus. If anyone, no rabbi said that in Jesus' day. If anyone wants to be my apprentice, anybody, doesn't matter what you've done. I mean, think about the stories of the people in the gospels, sex workers, tax collectors, Pharisees, violent religious extremists and terrorists who all come under Jesus' life. And love. It's open no matter what you've done or not done, no matter where you come from or don't come from, no matter what you have right or going for you or what you have wrong, no matter what your questions, your doubt, your faith, no matter your psychosis, all of us are invited to come and follow Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. It's my privilege to invite you as a church to come to the table, which is a way that we come to Jesus in some strange way that followers of Jesus have been trying to figure out for 2,000 years. When we eat this bread, we eat Jesus' body. And when we drink this cup, we drink Jesus' blood. And we literally ingest into our soul, into the depth of our being, the presence and love of Jesus. So you're all invited for that. Also, um, we have a prayer team that I think is about to come up. You're welcome to come for prayer. Um, we have some mats down here if you wanna come and kneel and pray and just process with God. And as, last thing before I walk off and abandon you forever. Um, as I was praying this morning and just thinking on the drive over and in worship, and really thinking about this idea of trust you know, Jesus said, the other invitation he said was to repent and believe in the good news of the kingdom. And this word believe, um, a number of scholars argue that actually it's not a great English translation because again, we think that means say yes to certain things in your mind. It actually means to trust. And the invitation of Jesus is always to repent, to rethink, and to trust him. To trust his mental maps to reality. To trust that his way is the way to life. And even though it's a narrow way, and even though it's so against the flow of so much of our cities, it is the way to life. So I don't know what this looks like for you this morning, but my sense is what the Spirit of God wants to do in your community, or maybe it's just in my own heart, and I'm just reading that into you, but is to decrease our doubt, our anxiety, or our rebellion, whatever it is, and to increase our trust in Jesus as our rabbi and as so much more as the mouthpiece and reality of God, the loving creator himself. So as we move to sing, as we come to the table, as we come for prayer, as we come to kneel, let's posture our heart to a greater place of trust as we sing.